So real quick, I want to look at two different, two different ideas. There's, there's the, the omnipresence of God, which is, um, the, I've found a really great definition. Omnipresence is the everywhere present God. And if, we, if you've read any scripture or have any church history, you know that we understand that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present at all times. That is a given statement. That's not exactly what I'm talking about today. We can understand that God is everywhere at all times and be completely oblivious to it. And I think a lot of us do that. I, I, I know I'm guilty of it. I know I'm really guilty of, of living my life not aware of God's presence. But then throughout scripture, we have the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence of God is a tangible or visible or, or sensed presence of God that is different from his everywhere presence. And that's what I want to talk about today. The main goal of God's manifest presence in people is to make them aware of God. That's the number one goal. It's not to give messages, it's not to change, it's, it's to make you aware that he exists. And I think a lot of times he has to do that because we understand theologically that God's everywhere all the time, but yet we don't live our lives as if he does. We still live our lives as if we can hide things from him. We still live our lives as if, as, as Hal said last week, that, that we're in control. And if we're in control, that makes us Lord and not him Lord, and that's not exactly what we signed up for if we've raised our hand and said yes to Jesus. And so this morning, I want to walk us through history, going all the way back to Genesis, of God's manifest presence with his people. And it started in the Garden of Eden. Before sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, God made Adam and Eve and he walked with them. He walked with them in perfect unity, in perfect harmony. And it was his divine manifest presence found before sin entered the world. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, they cause a rift and they cause there to be separation from us and God because God is perfect and we clearly are not. But real fun for me is I love the fact that the first thing that God did after Adam and Eve sinned is he went and found them. To me, that's so powerful that God didn't didn't go run away because he knew they'd sinned. He went and found them first. And then in the book of Exodus chapter 11, we see that God meets with one man, Moses, in the burning bush, the bush that is is burning but never consumed. But it's interesting, he's only meeting with one person. He's only meeting with one person. And then we see in Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Exodus 25, 8. God wanted to be able to dwell with his people. He wanted his presence to be with his people. And each time that you see God doing something with his presence, it starts out with just Adam and Eve and then just Moses, but now he wants to dwell with his people. And he says to make me a tabernacle or a tent or a tent of meeting. And God wanted it to be mobile because this is when they were wandering in the desert. And God said, I want want a place, a specific place where I can meet you. So God gave them the directions on how to build this place where he could meet with them. But still, it was just Moses that could meet with them in that spot to begin with. But I found it really interesting as I was studying this, that in Exodus 40, which is the very end of the book of Exodus, the last chapter of the book of Exodus, 
The tabernacle is built. The tent of meeting is built. The place where God is going to meet with his people is built. But Moses couldn't enter because God's presence was too much. That's just really interesting to me. God said, hey, I'm going to create a place for us to meet together. And they complete it. And God said, well, you can't actually. And in the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus 1.1, it says that God spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle, from the place of his presence. So God is inside the tent and Moses is outside of the tent and cannot come in. If you're familiar with the Bible, anyone else think Leviticus is just dreadfully boring? Just, okay, good, thank you. Thank you for not making me feel like a heathen, all of you honest people. It is great reading if you're having trouble sleeping. It is. I'm telling you, it is, it's better than NyQuil, man. It's just right to sleep because it does, it's just so dry because it's all these do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, but do it this way. And if you do it this way, you're going to die. There's a lot of that. If you do it this way, you're going to die, but do it this way and then do this. And then these people should do this and those people should do that. And this, and it's like, oh my word, I don't care. I think I should, but I don't. Until I saw what happens in the book after Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 1.1, God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. The book of Leviticus is there to give God's people a chance to meet with him. It's all the how-tos. It's how to be holy. It's how to be pure. It's how to be righteous and all these different rituals, and all these different sacrifices, and all these things. And so the entire book of of Leviticus is to show you what the Israelites, God's people, had to do in order to be able to go into the tent of meeting. I thought that was so cool. For the first time ever, Leviticus had a purpose other than boredom. It showed the people of Israel, this is how you can interact with my presence. This is how you're going to have to live your life in order to meet with me. And then because of Israel's sin, the presence was taken away for a while. They were in battle with uh, the Canaanites, I believe. If not, forgive me. They were in battle with someone. And they were more concerned with the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place where God's spirit lived. It was this gold box that had golden angels on the top and their wings came over the top and there was a circle in the middle and that's where God's spirit lived. That's where God's glory lived. That's where his presence was. And they were going into battle They were going into battle, and they didn't trust God, but they trusted the box. And they took the box. They weren't actually concerned with God, and it makes it very clear in this writing that they weren't concerned with God, that they weren't trusting God, they were trusting this box. It's like sometimes I think we trust the church, but we don't always trust God. Or we trust something God has created, we don't always trust the God who created it. And God got a little upset, and so he allowed them to be defeated, and they took the enemies took the Ark of the Covenant and then all these really bad things started happening to them and they said, take it back, we don't want it. And so they take it back and God says, build for me a temple. Well, actually, they want a temple and God says, fine. And so they build him a temple, a stationary location, one place where God's presence would be found throughout the rest of time and it was beautiful and it was ornate and there was the temple and then there was an inner court and then there was another court and then there was the holy of holies where only the, the priest could go and only one person could be in the presence of God and it's in the temple. 
from the temple in Jerusalem and God's people could meet with him there. But again, it was one location. Yes, God is omnipresent. Yes, we understand that. Throughout history, he's been everywhere all the time. But his presence, his glory, could only be found in one location and it was for a very restricted few. And I think, unfortunately, even today we still kind of buy that. We still kind of buy that God's presence is really only for the religious elite. Pastors, elders, and maybe some older people who've walked with God for a lot of years. Everyone else, we're just out of luck. We kind of have this idea that God's presence is something that we have to do all these rituals to get to. I don't see that at all. But again, God's people sinned against him and he removed his presence from the temple. And you see this in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel was a prophet of God and he was called to tell Jerusalem that terrible things are going to happen if we don't turn it around. If we don't figure it out, some terrible things are going to happen. And Ezekiel sees the presence of God in Babylon. And it's just really weird. I think weird's a fine word. It's a very weird scene. It's, there's, there's four angels, and, and they've got feet like cows, and they've got four wings, and there's a hand under each wing, and they've got four faces, and their wings all touch, so it makes a square, and below them is a wheel, but inside the wheel is another wheel, so they never have to turn. It just goes, and then there's, there's this, this like glass top and a throne and then there's God's presence I'm like that's really complicated but it's interesting he sees it in Babylon and how could it be there if God's presence is supposed to be in the temple and God is telling his people I'm sorry you've messed up too many times I'm out and again that's another problem we have with God's presence is we think he's done that to us. We've sinned too many times for God's presence to be there in our lives. It's just, I I know me, I know what I did yesterday and the day before and two weeks before that and then back in the 80s. I know myself. There's absolutely no way that God's presence could ever be found with me and we miss it. God's presence eventually returns and then more things happen, but then we get the fullness of his presence in the man of Jesus. God puts on flesh and bone, and we just celebrated that time in history that God put on flesh and bone and came and dwelled with his people as Jesus. But again, it was only one man in one place. The manifest presence of God was only found in one place, and that was Jesus. And that's why Jesus tells his followers, guys, guys, I'm gonna go away. And they're like, no, no, don't go away. He's like, chill, chill. It's actually better. And I gotta be honest, if I'm, if I'm one of the disciples and I've seen Jesus do all these things and, and soon I think we'll see him raise Lazarus and he does these amazing things, I'm like, how, how is it better that you're not here? You are literally God himself walking in human flesh. How is it better if you go away? Jesus says, it's better that I go away because I'll send you one that's better than me. Because Jesus was out there. The presence of God had always been out there. Something to experience outside of ourselves. Then we come to this amazing day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, let's turn there. Acts chapter two. 
Acts chapter 2. Jesus tells his followers, do not leave this place until you get what I've promised you. Do not leave. Don't go anywhere. And sometimes as a pastor, anytime I preach on Acts 2, I just want to do that. Like, we're not leaving until we experience God. Lock the doors. We're in here. Bring in lunch. We're not going nowhere. But I don't think that'd be received very well. See, none of you are laughing, so you're like, is he really going to do that today? I didn't sign up for this. I got lunch plans. I got things to do. There's football games on. Chiefs aren't playing. Who cares? Go Titans. Just for a second, let's praise the Lord for the Titans beating the New England Patriots. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Someone asked me one time, like, what are you going to do if you ever meet Tom Brady? Like, I'm going to respect that man and just tell him, I'm so glad you didn't win. You've won too much, too much winning for you. You're done. Acts 2, 2 through 4. And suddenly, I love that, because that's how God works. It's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. Boom, suddenly. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting in. It filled the entire house. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the, others, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we always get stuck on that last part. We'll get there, but it's okay. But this amazing moment happened. The manifest presence of God was no longer external. God went from living in one place and only a select group of people could ever meet there. And then he lived in another place and only a select group of people could be there. And then he came to earth and only a select group of people were able to be around him. And then Jesus goes away and he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his glory. He gives us his presence. And I gotta be honest, I started going to church when I was 16, went away to college. I don't ever remember hearing a message on the Holy Spirit. I always kind of felt like the Holy Spirit was like the, the third little stepbrother in the Trinity. Like God was great, Jesus saved us, and here's the Holy Spirit. We don't really know what he does or what we're supposed to do with him. And some people do some weird things. We just don't talk about it. Like he's like the drunk uncle. Like we just, we just don't talk about him. He comes to Christmas, but we don't talk about him. That's kind of how I feel like the Holy Spirit is in a lot of churches because we don't know what to do. And we're told that his presence can be felt. His presence should be with us. And yet so many of us come to church week in and week out going, not this week, not this week, didn't this week. And we go years without having the manifest presence, which makes us unbelievably aware of God. And in Acts 2, there were two distinct things that happened. One, the Spirit would now dwell in people, not come upon them. Because throughout the Old Testament, you've got the Spirit came upon Saul when he was anointed king, the first king of Israel. The Spirit came upon him, but then he sinned and did bad, and the Spirit went away. The Spirit came on Samson, if you know the story. He did some amazing things and, and did all these amazing things. And every time he did something, it said the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And then he sinned and it was taken away. This is the first time ever in the history of the world that God lived in people. And so many of us this morning are like, yeah. That, that sentence that I just said, 
that God himself lives in people should bring you joy. It should bring you excitement. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Because we're so used to it and we've come, I think we've all come to this conclusion that yes, God is omnipresent all the time but I'm just never gonna, I'm just never gonna know him. I'm just, I'm probably just not good enough. I probably, and so when someone says that God himself, the very presence of God, Jesus himself, the creator of the universe has decided to live in you, we don't respond with anything but, okay. I think that's really sad because the second thing that changed at Pentecost is that God would never remove his presence ever again. His presence is permanent. You can't cause God's presence to leave you. And I'm not talking about his omnipresence, that he's there all the time. I'm talking about his manifest presence that you can sense, that you know. You know those times in worship where you're singing a song that you kind of don't even like and you're fighting back tears on a song that you really don't connect to? Yeah, that's the manifest presence of God trying to do something in your life. But what do we do? Shut it down. Push it down. Not in church. We don't do that here. We don't. We're so afraid that God's going to do something amazing. Because if God does something amazing, I'm going to have to change. I'm not about to do that. Even though I don't really like who I am, I'm not about to change it. And we miss God's presence over and over and over. Because at that moment, when we say yes to Jesus, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, we can debate Scripture. Is there, is there, we were baptized in the Holy Spirit when we said yes to Jesus, or is there a secondary baptism? Not here to do that. You are baptized with the Holy Spirit, which baptism, baptizo is the Greek word, means to, to submerge, which then removes the sprinkler idea, to submerge or to be identified with. When we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, I belong to the body of Jesus. When we raise our hand and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you lived the life that I couldn't live and died a death I couldn't die and you are my savior. The, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, God himself, the manifest presence of God swarms into you and fills you to the brim. Now we're never asked to be baptized twice. We're never encouraged to be baptized twice in the Holy Spirit, but we are constantly exhorted, is the, the biblical word, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's like we, we just kind of push him aside. We just push him aside. I'm gonna live my life, I'm gonna do it how I wanna do it, I'm gonna do church how I wanna do it, I'm gonna do all these things how I wanna do it, and we just push him aside, and then God's like, no, you need to be filled. You need to be filled, and so we're gonna look at that real quick in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter five. Turn there with me, please. Ephesians chapter five. I have two different closings depending on how far we get because I'm speaking next week so what we don't cover this week we'll just cover next week so don't worry about it. Because I got a lot of things to say because there's a lot of things about the Holy Spirit and, and I think that we just, we miss a lot of it. 
And real quick, before we jump into Ephesians 5, I think part of why we miss it is because sometimes people do weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit. Can I just be honest? Sometimes people do weird things in the name of the Holy Spirit. I had a mentor one time tell me, um, the Holy Spirit's not weird. People are. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes total sense. People are weird. Across the board. We're our own color of weird, our own color of crazy. We do our odd things. And we do odd things and we say, oh, the Spirit made me do it. And the Spirit's like, ah, no, no, I didn't. That's weird. I love you. I do. But that's weird. Don't do that. And so what we've done is those things make us so uncomfortable because they should that we just, we don't walk, we run. I'm not gonna run because I'll get winded and then that's bad. We run all the way over here. We're like, nope, no Holy Spirit. Nope, 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 nope. He's omnipresent. He fills me, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. And there's like this giant middle ground that we don't walk in because we're so afraid of the weird stuff that people do in the name of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's like, I never asked you to do that. I didn't, I promise. But Ephesians 5, verse 18. Paul speaking to the church of Ephesus in a letter, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, the, the exhortation, the, the, the push is to be filled with the Spirit. They've already got the Spirit, but they're not filled with it. There's constantly needing to be filled with the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say what this being filled with the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul makes it clear that that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, these three things should begin to happen. That we sing to God. And also, it's, it's really interesting, it's not just singing to God. Now, this is supposed to be about a corporate setting. He's not just saying sing to God, he's saying sing to each other, too. When you sing out, it encourages other people. When you raise your hands in worship, it encourages other people. And this morning, I could hear it. I could hear it. I could hear the excitement and the energy, and I could see people with their hands up, and it just encouraged me more to to sing to God and to sing to you guys the hymns and the praises and the glory of God. That's part of what being filled with the Spirit of God is supposed to do, is it makes us want to worship. It makes us want to praise Him, regardless of what style it is. Secondly, makes us want to pray. makes us want to pray and thank God that as wretched and disgusting as I am, he has chosen to live in me. Think about that. You know your life. You know your sin. You know your past sin, your previous sin, and you can take a good guess at what your future sin is going to be. But God said, I want to live in you. I want to live in you. I don't want to live in a box. I don't want to live in a temple. I don't want to live in church. Acts 7 tells, Paul tells us, uh, I think it's Paul. Acts 7 tells us that God does not live in places built with human hands. God does not reside in this building except when we're here. 
because he resides in his church and his church are his people. And so every week we should come together and we should say prayers of thanksgiving and we should sing songs to each other and to God and then we serve each other. We elevate others more highly than we elevate ourselves and I realized this morning, I did, I did a quick count. Every Sunday morning it takes about a minimum of 30 people to run a service. 30 people, worship team, ushers, counters, kids ministry, pastor, sound people, takes about 30 people. There's tons of opportunities for us to serve. There's tons of opportunities for you to join this body and serve because I, I, I heard someone say one time that if you're a guest at a house, no one ever asks you to do anything. But if you're a family member, there's some chores that need to be done. There's some things that need to be done. Some of you are like, oh, am I getting guilt trip? This feels like a guilt trip. It is. It is. You should feel a little guilty you're not serving. Because what's happening is you've got people serving week in and week out and week in and week out and week in and week out that you don't even know go to church here. Because you're here and they're serving. It's a little guilt trip. You can forgive me later. But we've got, there's three things. Three things. We sing, we pray, and we serve. We sing, we pray, and we serve. We sing, we pray, and we serve. Manifest presence of God would be felt. Now you're like, well, we do those things. Do we? We may do those things, but is that our focus? Do we come in here as critics? Do we come in here as critics? Does the worship start? And for some of us, do we think, man, that's just too loud? And others think, man, that's not loud enough. I can still hear myself sing. And we stop worshiping. Because God's manifest presence, I said earlier, was to make you aware of God. When you're focused on those things, you're aware of yourself, not God. Well, I don't know that song. Let's be honest, okay? Christian songs are not super creative, okay? Listen to it once, you'll catch it the second time. I promise. And it'll be stuck in your head for years. Christian music is super good at that, okay? So even if it's a new song you've never heard, listen to it once. We do it twice, three times, four times sometimes even. Then some of you are like, are we doing the song again? Yes, we are. We are, because it's good. But again, every time that we start critiquing and criticizing and being critical, presence gone. And that is why so often we come to church and we leave church going, I didn't really feel God today. I didn't. I didn't feel him at all. And all of you come in going, oh God, I need you. I need you this morning. I need to feel your presence. And you come in, you're like, did you see what she was wearing did you see that pastor and his beard? It's just, oh, and his tattoo. Oh, it's just, no, mm -mm, can't, can't do it. The color of the carpet, oh, mm -mm, it's hot. It's hot in here. It's cold in here. It's too loud. It's too quiet. It's a ham. It's contemporary. It's piano. It's electric guitar. It's acoustic. It's, we have all these things that we begin to gripe about. And God's like, I really just wanted to meet with you this morning. I really came here this morning just to meet with you so you could feel my presence, so you could be encouraged, and all you come in here to do is complain. God's like, I ain't doing that. I'm not part of that. I will be omnipresent, but I will not be manifest present. That's why we miss it. 
And we pray with thanksgiving, and we pray to Santa Claus. At least I do. God, I don't, I've got 30 seconds to pray today, so here's the 15 things I need and the 25 things I need you to do next week. Done. Amen. Thank you, God. Whew, check that box off. I have prayed today. No, I asked Santa Claus for my wish list. Do we stop and thank God? The God of the universe, the Savior of my soul, the forgiver of my sins, the fountain of mercy and hope lives in me. Me, broken, messed up, flawed, disgusting, horrible me. And he'll never leave me again. God, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I could never thank you enough. I don't need anything else. Thank you. It'd be cool if you did that. But God, thank you so much. And then do we come in here to serve or do we come in here to be served? Do we come in here on a Sunday morning hoping that I'm gonna get it? I'm gonna be fed. I'm, it's, gonna, it's, it's for me, it's for me, it's for me. Or do I come in going, God, I'll do anything it takes for everyone else to experience your presence? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus did whatever it took to the point of his brutal, six-hour, torturous death to open up the gates for you and I to not just understand that his presence is everywhere, but to feel it and to know it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm gonna go through this next one real quick. I promise, it'll be real fast. I think you're engaged. I'm feeling a little engagement, so we're gonna keep going. Okay, if I lose you, forgive me. We'll say I should have stopped. Matthew 28, real quick, Matthew 28, and then we'll be done. And I promise I won't talk this fast once I get going. Matthew 28, I can't promise that, that's a lie. Matthew 28, I get excited, I'm sorry. I get excited. Matthew 28, it's one of the most famous verses for Christians, it's, it's the Great Commission. It's God's command to his people. And there's two promises. There's a promise of power and a promise of presence. starting in verse 18, 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the promise of power. Authority and power are interchangeable words there. And so Jesus is saying, I have all the power that the world could ever know, which means, ha, fun fact, you, within you, with the Holy Spirit, not because you are anything special or I'm anything special, but because God is amazing, you have all authority and power in you. Some of you don't believe it. Some of you don't buy it. Some of you are like, I don't know, I don't know. Jesus, okay, let's, let's break it down theologically. God and Jesus, same, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Theologically, they're the same, one and the same. They're different, but they're the same. Holy Spirit, Jesus, same, right? Same? Holy Spirit, God, same. It's the Trinity. It's the thing. It's the, we don't understand, but we get it. It's all one together. So if Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me, and I match the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to live in you, then all authority and power has been given to you. That should scare you a little bit. I'm going to go. Okay, so... There's this really cool story in the New Testament. It's one of my favorites. So the disciples, they're gonna go to this city and they're sitting around thinking, what if? 
And they start, they start playing the what if game. And so then, I think it's Peter, because he's the only one probably dumb enough to say this. He goes to Jesus and say, Jesus, if they don't accept you in this city, can we call down fire from heaven? Just poof. Jesus rebukes them for wanting to kill people, which he should. He doesn't rebuke that they thought they could do it. Catch that. Don't kill people. Bad. Bad. One of the commandments. Don't do it. You guys actually thought you could do it. You're getting it. You're getting that you have this power inside of you that if you have faith the size of mustard seed, what can you do? Move a whole mountain. A whole mountain. Not like an Ozark mountain. That's not a mountain, okay? Talking like a Rocky mountain. It will pick itself up and throw itself into the sea. That's the power you have inside of you. Not because you're special or I'm special, but because God is amazing. We continue. Oh, I missed pages 28, 19. There we go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and here's the promise of presence, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's power and there's presence. There's a command in the middle. There's a command in the middle. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. I wonder. This is just my theory. This is my theory. I wonder if we miss both the power and the presence because we don't do the commandment. And I wonder, I wonder if all the things that you read about in Acts that the disciples did, all the signs and the wonders, the power that they had, wasn't for a specific time, but was simply because they were doing what they were commanded to do. And they had both the power and the presence. And so all of us in this room who are not being discipled or making disciples, are we lacking both the power and the presence? What if? What if? I could be totally wrong. But what if? When we came to church every Sunday, all we cared about was worshiping God. And if I got up here and I can't sing worth a lick, and I got up here and I played a kazoo and a tambourine and sang, kum, and sang kumbaya for 20 minutes, off key. Actually, it'd be like off in multiple keys, but it's neither here nor there. It would be terrible. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It'd be horrible. What if we came in here and we're like, oh, yes, I'm here to worship God. I don't care what the song is. I don't care how loud it is or how quiet it is. I don't care if we're worshiping in silence or song or hymns or contemporary or this new song that we just made up on the spot that no one really knows. We're here to worship and we're gonna pray. We're not gonna pray for the stupid things that we think we need. We're gonna pray and thank God nonstop that he decided to leave heaven, to come to earth, to save our souls, but that's not enough for him. It's not enough just to save us. He's gotta live in us and be there for the rest of time. And then we served each other until we couldn't serve each other anymore and we made disciples. I think we would have both the power and the presence and you couldn't keep people away. We don't need to invite people to church. We need to invite people to Jesus and the Holy Spirit won't be able to keep them away from church.